So today we're talking to Stu Holloway. Uh, Stu is the founder and president of Cognitect. Hi, Stu. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And today we're going to talk about REPL and what it is actually to have usable REPL and um, how can you configure yours. So uh, when we talk about REPL, what will be the first topic we should debunk? So I think that you know I've been asked a number of times uh, what the difference is between uh, the REPL, a read-about print loop, and a shell. And uh, I'm going to try to take a little bit of a different track today. Uh, usually, I mean, there's a technical answer, uh, but I'd like to talk about instead the kinds of problems that we're trying to solve when we use these tools. And that's a lead in to, you know, why the differences matter. So I think when people okay. think about uh, a programmatic shell or a REPL, they think about uh, interacting with their program and having immediate feedback. And that is certainly true, uh, both of REPLs and shells, right? That you can walk up to a, a mm -hmm. running program and uh, get access to it uh, and send commands and, and get, you know, responses, whatnot. Um, right. And that's great. Um, but one of the things that is uh, incredibly important in closure programming is focus. And back at the first conj, we had, I believe it was at the first conj, we had these t-shirts that said mm -hmm. simplicity, power, focus. And of course, uh, anyone who's been in the closure ecosystem has uh, had the simplicity Kool-Aid poured on them uh, any number of times. And there are talks about simplicity uh, and there are some talks about power. Uh, but focus is a more uh, subtle uh, notion, I think, and and probably not as important as simplicity or power. I mean, but uh, but focus is really the ability to uh, you know carve your program down to exactly the part of the problem that you're working on, and not have to worry about any of the other parts. And when you go into your tooling and say, "I want tooling that helps me focus." Uh, is where another place where REPLs really shine. And the difference here then between REPLs and shells is that uh, shells are just interactive semantics, you know, added to a, a programming environment where the read eval print loop is the fundamental semantics of closure. Uh, when you think about a closure program being loaded, uh, it's as if you had sat at the REPL and typed in the forms one at a time. Um, mm. It's instead those forms are, are being read in. And the stuff that people normally think about at a higher level, you know, files and modules and directories and test suites and all those things are, are kind of epiphenomena uh, in that sense. And so, you know, when you learn how to work with closure at the REPL, you're working, you know, kind of at, at bedrock and you're able to uh, learn closures core abstractions uh, and use them directly instead of. Uh, learning a set of you know higher level meta abstractions about managing your program, and uh, and you know people have attacked this kind of program in other uh, problem in other ways. So you see, um, you know people you know using um, mocks and stubs or various kinds of modularity uh, mm -hmm. abstractions to sort of say I want to work on this piece of my program. But in my experience, um, nothing touches being able to build your program you know piece by piece. Uh, interacting with forms at the REPL. And if you have a piece that you don't like, you evaluate a form to banish that piece. Um, and you can be very precise. And it, one of the things that I have, yeah, uh, I've always tried to do, but I try even more to do now having um, 
gone out in public and talked about this is that whenever I sit down to work on a problem, before I dive in and get my hands dirty um, with all the details of, of getting into a situation where I can focus on my problem, I ask, what's wrong with my environment that doesn't let me immediately focus on this problem? And you know, try to nudge and tweak my environment as I go on a day-to-day basis. So the next time I come back to work on a particular piece of code, that I can reach that moment of focus more quickly. Mm-hmm. So what would be this kind of environment we were talking about? Well, it really is a matter of, um, I mean, first off, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of tooling things. So I think when people imagine uh, uh, typing at a shell, um, there are two ways in which just the typing sucks. Uh, one of them is that you don't have the support that you're accustomed to having from, say, an IDE that knows about what you're doing. And for me, the biggest piece of that is not actually completion or coloring or any of those things, but it's just having structural awareness. And so I've been a fairly long time user of PAREdit. There are other tools in that space, but something that knows about the structure of the text that you're typing from a closure perspective so that you can work at units of structure and not at units of characters so that's that's an important piece and what is there anything like is there anything special about power edit that is different to i don't know power infer or anything like this in this way so i think that um uh you know within cognitech there are par edit enthusiasts and uh par infer enthusiast at least one maybe others uh and uh, i have not spent a lot of time with par infer but my understanding is that uh, par infer has the ability to sort of uh, interpret your white space actions as intent for how you're going to move right. the code around. And so mm-hmm. um, that's a little bit more magical and it takes a little bit more, in my opinion, of a learning curve, although I've heard people say the opposite. So it may be you know, more about uh, where you're coming from. Um, but I'm not religious on this particular topic. I think the important thing is that that when you're typing, you have a way you know, to not deal directly with characters, but to deal at the level of structure. Uh, and then like the second I, I, thing, and, and it's amazing how often I watch programmers with a decade or more of experience do this, is that you don't type directly into a REPL. Not that you couldn't, uh, but that you type in a comfortable editor of your choice, and then you have the one all-important command, which is send form to REPL in whatever you know editor you use, whether it's IntelliJ with cursive or uh, Emacs or VI with all the various, uh, you know, supporting modes there. But those are really the two, in my opinion, the two critical enablers. Uh, one of them is uh, being able to work structurally. And the other one is to say, I can live in uh, whatever power text tool I like uh, and, and interactively then send forms to my REPL. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this would be the one part uh, of this whole setup. What are the other parts? I actually think that's it. So um, my my setup for um, you know my poor Emacs file probably hasn't been touched in five years. Uh, my .dot Emacs, which is where I work, right? The config. Uh, but but I think that that one of the things that I have done as I continue to write software day to day is try to have fewer and fewer tools that are more and more general. And of course, Clojure itself as a language is a great example of that. 
uh, because closure is oriented around a small number of data structures, then when you invest in understanding those data structures, you sort of understand the whole ball game. And so you don't mm-hmm. have the experience that you have with object-oriented programming where every new thing you walk up to is you know, a brand new uh, thing to be learned. And I think we have a really nice example of this. You know, in the last couple of years, uh, David Chlimsky and other folks at Cognitech have been building uh, an idiomatic closure API for accessing AWS. And it's a great mm-hmm. API to study just to look at how thin you, the closure is around actually doing the job. The job is all just about data. Um, but I, I want to emphasize that that I don't in my day-to-day development um, I mean, I have syntax coloring and, uh, and I have structural editing with part it. Um, and I don't have any objection to, you know, more advanced tooling, but I, I don't find it necessary. So maybe um, when we talk also about the, uh, evaluation of the code and when you send this to the REPL, is there anything on the other side when the, the evaluation happens that you set up some kind of pretty printing or anything like this? So, you know, I think that, that one of the important and nice things about working at the REPL is that these kinds of questions can be fairly task focused. So there may not be a, a one size uh, fits all answer. Um, obviously, if you wanted to, and I've demonstrated this in conference talks, you could replace the, the REPL, you could plug in pieces, right? You can say, I want the reader to behave differently, the R, or I want the evaluator E to behave differently, although that's less common unless you're doing language design. Uh, or I want the printer to behave differently. That's probably the most common thing that people want to uh, mess around with because you're working with uh, you know, data and all of a sudden you get something that's slightly larger and it fills up your screen and it's formatted in an ugly way or whatever. And so certainly one option is to pretty print. Another option is to, and this is usually what I do, I run with the normal printer uh, in the REPL until I have a reason um, to look at something bigger. And at that point, then I just pretty print that individual form or some piece of that form. And that's a workflow that, you know, I started doing closure um, to late, you know, just before closure 1.0. And uh, in that whole time, that workflow was satisfactory. And the only thing that has really evolved about that workflow for me is uh, since we produced Rebel, uh, I will keep a Rebel uh, window running alongside so rebel is read eval browse loop uh, and that's the talk that i gave at last year's uh closure conj and what rebel does is uh, it generalizes the notion of laziness uh, in visualizing your data so there's this notion of data fine nav that say how do i want to navigate through this data and how deeply do i want to navigate through it and it's got a good set of defaults so inst- and it's a lot faster than printing so whether you're printing or pretty printing or any other kind of printing. And so uh, one of the things that this lets you do is quickly move from, um, I saw this piece of code work with a small example to let me run it with a larger example and eyeball it and see if it makes sense. And this is something that I think, you know, if you watch uh, people teaching, say, test-driven development, uh, it's a place where the discipline uh, can fall down. And, and it falls down because you look at you know, three or six or 10 small examples that you're willing to type into a test. Um, and the next step that I want to be able to take is say, okay, I saw this example work 
with something of size three. I want to see what happens if it's applied to a collection of size a thousand, where the the things nested inside the collection are you know ten or fifty or whatever, and uh, that quickly blows past your ability to process it, even if it's pretty printed. Uh, but being able to navigate around that uh, in Rebel is is a huge win uh, for interactivity and focusing on larger pieces of data. And uh, Sean Corfield did a really nice uh, screencast showing his workflow. Uh, you may have seen it working on uh, debugging a problem, uh, I think in Closure Java JDBC, I don't remember for sure, but debugging an issue there and showing how he used Rebel as a sort of alongside his regular editing environment to have a way to quickly navigate around larger pieces of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that we can put that in the show notes, definitely. Your setup will be then you have Emacs and you evaluate your code and then side to side you would have the Rebel browser? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And there are, you know, there are different scenarios there. I mean, usually I have one inferior Lisp going in Emacs. But if I'm doing, say I'm working on something that's got Datomic client and Datomic cluster in it, uh, that I'll run the code for the cluster node in one inferior Lisp with one set of Java dependencies. And then I will start a second inferior Lisp uh, running the client. And every once in a while, if I'm doing something, you know, <laughs> that really has three or five distributed pieces, I'll end up, you know, juggling uh, all of those different REPLs, each of which has its own independent evolution and state. Although usually, you know, um, that's its own way of <laughs> getting yourself confused, uh, trying to do all those things at once. But every once in a while, you're doing something where you are interactively saying, I'm going to make this change on a server and a corresponding change on a client. And so having two REPLs and two code bases and jumping back and forth between them uh, is a very fast way to interactively do that kind of work. When you say inferior Lisp, what do you mean by that? So inferior Lisp is an ancient uh, Emacs mode, and I wired this up with whatever the state of the art was for closure the better part of a decade ago, and I have not picked up uh, any of the newer tools since then. So I think most of the developers at Cognitech actually um, use IntelliJ plus Cursive or use, when they're using Emacs, use CIDR. And so there's a lot of different ways mm -hmm. um, to do this. So, so things that I live without uh, include uh, completion. So, and I let that be a pressure towards keeping my APIs surface area ridiculously small, right? If it's big enough that I need completion to remember it, then it's too big. What's the next thing we should talk about? Because I have a feeling you just explore everything what I had on my list. So I, I, I you know, I, I, I hate to disappoint people who wanted to find the, uh, the super. Uh, Holy Grail. The super secrets of the the advanced REPL user because the, the secret is you don't need very much. You don't need very much in the way of tooling. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, I did want to say that um, yeah. I did want to put in a word for Closure South, which is the new big Closure conference that's going to be running uh, in uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil uh, right. coming up, I guess, at the last weekend of August, first weekend of September. And uh, I'm going to be giving a talk there where I talk about uh, the importance of having a small uh, set of really simple general purpose tools instead of having, you know, more powerful, elaborate tools. And the inspiration for the talk is Sherlock Holmes. Uh, and I mean here Sherlock Holmes of the uh, Conan Doyle books, not 
necessarily of the more recent uh, TV shows and movies. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Sherlock Holmes as a possible uh, software consultant. I think he'd be really good at it. And, and it's because he is a, he has tools. I mean, he has magnifying glass. He has things that he uses, but he uses incredibly simple tools and he focuses his efforts on the quality of his observations. And he's constantly telling Watson, you know, you and I just saw the same thing, but I observed far more. And he's not using um, incredibly advanced tools. He's just being very thoughtful about what problem he's trying to solve and what information uh, would help solve that problem. Is this, uh, is this something you think uh, we are missing in general as a software industry? Uh, I have come to think that's true a little bit. So I, I gave, you know, my favorite talk I think that I've given um, is a talk that I gave about debugging with the scientific method. Uh, that I gave a few conges ago. And, and one of the things that I noticed and commented on when I was doing the research for that talk is that, you know, when you search the internet for debugging, it's all about tools. It's all about, mm -hmm. you know, this and that debugger and this GUI and this visualiz visualization and that, you know, reverse time debugger. And all those things are cool. And it's, it's great to have good tools. Uh, but debugging is absolutely dominated by your ability to divide and conquer the search space of the problem. And um, it is possible to have tools that are about that. Uh, but the tools that we have today are primarily about, you know, richer or more purposeful interaction with our code and, you know, cracking open data structures and things like that. That um, They're not about, you know, automatically saying, hey, you could cut this problem in half You could cut out half the possibilities of the universe if you pick this point and only look left or only look right. And that kind of thing dominates. And, and I think that the debugging mindset dominates software development much more than people think because most people, when they're writing their code for the first time, are constantly debugging. Uh, and this is maybe more evident when you're working at a REPL because you try something and you think, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write these three lines of code and they're going to solve this tiny sub problem. And hey, presto, they don't. And then you say, oh, now I'm debugging. Even though I haven't even you know, committed code, I haven't even written a test yet. I'm already saying, I thought this code was going to do X, it did Y. And I have to go back and figure out what changed, you know, what the delta is between my understanding and my expectation. And so that thinking is happening all the time, not just when you're debugging a program that has a bug in the field. All right, so the REPL is also helping us to become Sherlock Holmes then. I Absolutely. Um, especially if you use a Spartan REPL, um, you know, like the one that I use. Uh, and, I, you know, I've jokingly, you know, done this a couple of times. You know, we did a lot of work in, in Closure 110 uh, about improving the quality of error reporting uh, all the way back out to end users, which turned out to have, uh, you know, several nuances um, that... I think that the users who are suffering and the people who are working on it didn't understand until we totally, you know, got into it, which is, you know, how design works. You, you drill in and you discover, you know, things that you didn't know. Uh, but one of the things that I did leading up to that, um, I wrote a blog post where I said, you know, if you really find these error messages off-putting and scary, um, you could run your REPL in a mode that redacts all errors. And so I wrote a, I don't remember. So I guess it was an exception handler for the REPL that basically said, uh, replaced all errors with, sorry, something scary happened, but we're going to protect you from it. So, 
And the, the point that I was making in doing that, obviously, you know, this is terrible, right? We're throwing away information that we had. Uh, but the point was that uh, if you stay focused, you actually don't need more information than that. If you really are working at the smallest level, and at that smallest level, the only error message you could possibly get is a red sign that says didn't work. That's actually enough. I'm not saying we should throw away the other information, uh, but the actual ability to be productive is dominated by having that kind of focus, not by having richer, more detailed information. Hmm. Um, just coming back, what is a Spartan REPL? Oh, Spartan REPL uh, was just uh, an idiom for a REPL without any bells and whistles. All right. Well, I guess your whole yes, environment our... <laughs> for developing code is Spartan, I believe. Yes, my the, the my development environment is Spartan, and that's been an evolution. At a point, in a point in my career, I was uh, a huge IDE expert. I knew, you know, five times more special hotkeys uh, in IntelliJ than anybody around me, and actually would give conference talks where I showed people how to use uh, advanced features of IntelliJ or how you could work in IntelliJ for, you know, hours without ever touching the mouse, uh, and that, that's a perfectly fine skill to have. Uh, but I find over time that it's not as important as some other skills. And what was the moment when you figure out this is not as important? I don't think it was one moment. I think it was, it has been a gradual thing as, uh, well, and I should say, let me just back up that another aspect of this has to do with how much time you're spending doing a particular kind of thing. And so if there's a piece of software that I use five minutes every six months, then my experience of that software is dominated by user interface and context sensitive help and things that remind me what the heck it is because I'm only looking at it for five minutes once every six months. Mm -hmm. But if I'm talking about a software tool that I spend 20 hours or sometimes 60 hours in a week uh, interacting with, then my productivity is dominated by its capabilities. And I don't need to have, uh, you know, all those other things because you develop, regardless of how easy or hard it is to use, uh, you develop the muscle memory, so to speak, of, of knowing what it is uh, and how it works. And so you have a different set of things that you're worried about. And so uh, one of the things I think that software developers, I mean, if you are actually writing software full time in an environment, uh, your interests should be dominated by power, not by ease. Not because we're anti-ease, uh, but because the most important thing is, you know, having all the capability and, you know, people can learn anything. Uh, certainly, uh, I've worked in language environments that are incredibly hostile um, and unforgiving in various ways. And uh, if the environment had the power to do something that other environments couldn't, then, you know, people are willing to put in the time. I'm not really sure if I uh, got this. So what was, uh, what drove you to, uh, like, if you say, if you use this uh, software for 20, 40 hours or 60 hours a week, uh, what drove you to make your environment for interacting with Clojure via REPL so Spartan, as you said? So I think it has to do with minimizing the number of things that you keep in your head. And uh, to go back to, you know, Sherlock Holmes again, uh, he makes the analogy that um, you have a tiny mind attic, uh, which is which is full of like the most important things to you, and that it's it's dangerous to fill that 
I mean, it may not be entirely fixed, but it's not entirely elastic either. And it's dangerous to fill that with information uh, that's not going to help you solve the, the key problems in your life. Because then when you are trying to work on those problems, you're going to have to wade past that information to find the stuff that you're interested in. And all of us have examples of, you know, information that we carry around in our heads. And you're like, wow, I wish I could reclaim that space for something else. I mean, I have a ton of quotes from early episodes of The Simpsons or a ridiculously unnecessary uh, memory of events in college and pro basketball. And it's like, wow, if all that was dedicated to, you know, knowing details about the JVM or something, I'd probably be a better closure programmer. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, some of what you fill your mind attic with is about enjoying your life. And so, you know, I love that my head is full of fun facts about basketball or favorite whiskeys or, you know, whatever are the things that I want to do in my free time. Uh, but, but to get back to the point, I think that, that uh, you know, a big lesson of working with closure for me is being minimalist and being able to say, you know what, I don't need a thousand classes to describe this problem. I can describe this problem with five data structures and 80 functions and, you know, reduce by an order of magnitude, um, the, you know, what I have to do. I think another thing that influences my interest in tools is that I actually long ago flipped over to the point where I spend a ton more time reading code than I do writing code. Um, and maybe everyone does always anyway. Certainly you're always reading your own code as you're working on it. Uh, but a lot of the work that I do is assessing Clojure and Java libraries for fitness to purpose rather than writing new code. And so I'm very interested in um, whatever is going to help me understand programs that people have written. And it turns out that that again is dominated by things that are not necessarily about IDEs or tools or REPLs. Um, I actually think that that and the closure, you know, world, we try to live this way. It's dominated by having really good English problem statements and really good English rationales for things. And that's certainly the thing that I'm always wanting to layer over uh, open source projects when I'm trying to understand them is, you know, where's the uh, two page uh, thing that says why this, why this works the way it does what problem it was trying to solve, what avenues were not considered, as opposed to trying to read through, you know, 50,000 or 500,000 lines of Java code to figure out what a thing does. Hmm. Um, so maybe just to, I don't know, to follow through on this uh, mindset and get, making our head full, our attics full of th stuff. Is there any particular, I don't know, way to get to this state of mind? Like, how do you know which things you, you should abandon and how and which one you should focus on? Uh, I think it's a difficult challenge and it's probably different for different people and different problems. But I would say as software developers, one thing we should be is we should have a, a lower pain threshold for complexity. And so, and, you know, it's a hard thing to teach and a hard thing to learn. You know, maybe one way to do it would be able to have you know, project retrospectives where you say, okay, here's the English description of what we did in our last sprint. And here are five things about the code that seem painful and maybe unrelated to accomplishing the objectives of the sprint. Why did that happen? 
And how could we make that not happen? And so what I, I see so often is that developers are, uh, you know, just pushing a rock uphill, that, that there's so much work going in to getting something done and, you know, a need to stop and say, okay, is there, is there something that could be done differently here? And of course, there's no, there's no free lunch there. I mean, you know, discovering that it's important to build your program around immutable data structures um, is a deep insight. And it's not an insight that you're not necessarily going to come to just by suffering. But I do, I do think that we need to uh, suffer the complexity of our programs and have ways to force ourselves to do that, <laughs> to make that more painful rather than less, so that we have inducement to try to make things uh, as clean and simple as we can. All right. Yeah. Uh, we will put the uh, links to the conferences and to the talks you mentioned in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for being here and spreading the wisdom about Spartan working uh, workflow environment. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.